shout out to Jen for supporting the podcast on Patreon. Thank you very much, Jen. I appreciate it. Some of you guys ask me how uh, how I make these podcasts, what my process is. And I figured this would be a time to tell you, um, as good a time as any at least. If you don't want to hear about it, you're welcome to just skip ahead. But right now, I am at my house uploading the intro to uh, GarageBand, where I have already gone through and tried to mix the audio as best that I can so that it goes into your ears um, without causing you to scream and shout. I will then find a song that a listener has uh, sent to the email in info at kyle.surf, uh, which I will then play at the end of the podcast. I will then put an outro uh, at the end of the podcast, record all that. I will sync it up. I will export it. I will then upload it to libsyn.com, which is uh, the program that hosts all of my podcasts and aggregates it out to uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening. I will go through and make Ben's bio and all of the links to the various places like the band and uh, ways to donate and links to the sponsors. I'll put all that in in the description below. I will then press upload and I will take the embedded code from Libsyn and put that over on my Squarespace site, kyle.surf, where I will also upload a photo, a separate description, and the embedded podcast link. I will press publish on that, and then upon which time, I will probably do some kind of Instagram post and uh, letting you guys know that it's up, as well as an email blast to let you know that it's up. So all of that takes me about two hours uh, after, you know, recording this podcast, and it's great. I love it. It takes a good amount of time. It's my job. So... Thank you very much to people like Jen who uh, support this show, Um, because in addition to all that, I am also reaching out to guests who are busy. Um, Better guests tend to be busier, and uh, that takes time as well. So the fun part of this whole thing is talking to guests um, and talking to you also. Those Those are my favorite parts of being a podcast host. The rest of it really does feel like work. Um... So thank you to everyone who supports, and that's the process. Thank you also to our sponsors. Thank you to the Nell Newman Foundation. They just came on for a few months. Um, And what's so great about the Nell Newman Foundation is I'm not trying to sell you a product with this ad. I get to sell you a cause. The whole point of this ad is to connect you with people who are doing good work. And this month, we are supporting the work of the Ron Finley Project. Ron Finley, a.k.a. the Gangster Gardener, is building um, gardens in urban deserts, and he is working in South Los Angeles right now. When this pandemic's over, um, he could use volunteers and specifically builders. So if any of you are builders, he's trying to do um, a new aspect to his garden. He, he has, I've been to it. I actually had Ron on this podcast a while back. It's a great episode. But he's got this big um, old derelict swimming pool in this backyard that he has made into a food forest. And he wants to build a riser over it. Um, and I actually hit up Ron and I got this message from him. Hey, Kyle, how you doing? Hope you're managing in this crazy pandemic quarantine situation we got going here. Uh, it's Ron Finley from the Ron Finley Project. 
Gangster Gardener. Um, what I'm trying to do here is um, beautify my space more, where it's more convenient and more lush. And, and um, what I want to do is start bringing more community in. So what we need, we need somebody that can build us a riser inside our swimming pool. And also we got a deck going in so we can have yoga classes. And we said, but he's got this big um, old derelict swimming pool in this backyard that he has made into a food forest. And he wants to build a riser over it. Um, And I actually hit up Ron and I got this message from him. So if you're a builder and you want to get connected with Ron, you can uh, reach out to me at info at kyle.surf and i'll connect you up with ron so thank you so much to the nell newman foundation for allowing me to do ads that don't sell you products just sell you causes thank you also to santa cruz medicinals and at this point i'm going to tell you about a new feature of this podcast i just got going the box goodies again um i i was doing it a while ago we stopped we're doing it again now so it's a subscription service where every month i send you a book that I love. And the first book, da da da, is Denali, which I will be um, ranting and raving about all month. And if you want to get Denali and some potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture, the kind that I use every night to help me with sore muscles, help me to go sleep, wake up uh, rested, if you want to get that, um, head over to my website, kyle.surf. So the way it works, you sign up for the subscription. Um, it's cheaper than getting the book and the CBD um, on their own. And then you trust me to send you a good book every month. Um, and it's a great way to support the podcast. So if you're thinking about, ah, maybe I could do Patreon, um, but you want something you know, back, um, the box of goodies is a way to do it. So head over to kyle.surf and check out the box of goodies. This episode of the podcast is with Ben Moon. Ben and I have been crossing paths for a long time, but never actually got to sit down. Um, He was listening to the podcast for a while and said, hey, I'd I'd be happy to do an episode with you. And I'd been a fan of him for a long time. Uh, longtime Patagonia photographer. I've been an ambassador of Patagonia for the last 10 years. Um, so I knew about him and I was always really impressed with his photography and I'd seen Denali and I loved that movie, but we had never hung out. Um, and then, uh, well, I was at Burning Man a couple of years ago going out to take a piss at, um, the porta potty after a long psychedelic induced night I don't think I had slept. And I see this guy walking towards me and he looks dusty and he points at me and goes, Kyle. And I'm like, Ben Moon? And he's like, hey, how are you? I'm like, I'm doing great. We're both probably in like loincloths and spandex. And uh, we both looked at each other because we had ta- we'd talked about doing this podcast and we're like, yeah, now's probably not the best time. <laughs> let's, let's make it happen uh, down the road. So this is Down the Road. For those of you who don't know, Ben Moon is an adventure lifestyle and portrait photographer whose vibrant images have graced the pages of Patagonia catalogs for the past 18 years. In recent years, he has shifted his focus to filmmaking. And in 2015, he founded his production company, Moon House, as a platform uh, for collaboration with friends and creatives to bring a wide range of thought-provoking, impactful, and cinematically beautiful stories to life on screen. So please, everyone, give it up for my friend, 
Ben. Um, oh, cool. You know, where they harvest wild axis deer out on Maui, and then they sell it as jerky. So he's in touch with a bunch of good companies. Cool. Right yeah, I've heard, I've heard talk about that. He's a badass. Um, so, at what? How much of your life is being consumed by photography right now? Um, on a normal, on a normal year, I mean, I, I, my roots were. I mean, the first companies I worked with were Patagonia back in. I think the first catalog I was in was like in 2002 or something. So it's been a long, long journey with them. Um, and you know, they've helped with some films. Um, you know, the, the smaller films I've done, and then. Um, but I, you know, photography was my roots, and that's what I, you know, I started when it was all still film and you know, climbing, and you know, I was mostly climbing back then, doing a lot of surf lifestyle and climbing and outdoor stuff. Um, but the last, uh, I don't know, eight eight to ten years, I've transitioned more into motion and you know, directing and have my own little production company called Moonhouse, and I kind of just make short films. I like to just tell stories um, about people that are interesting and. Um, in building this house, I really wanted to make, you know, have a, an edit studio and have a space like a, you know, a garage that would fit my van, but also I could use it for um, yeah. photo studio and filmmaking. And so it's like 50, 50 now. And then the past four years I've been working on the book. And so that really took a lot of my attention off of, um, I, had, I just needed space, you know, I just yeah. needed just to, to write something that personal was challenging. So, Yeah. I would have bet. I got the book right here. Where is it? Oh, nice. Yeah. Right on, man. I'm reading it. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah, you're a good storyteller. The first time that I saw one of your s- stories was the short film Denali. And um, you, uh, y- you're very funny. Uh, <laughs> you have well, a good was... se- sense of humor, which I appreciated about it. Um, I don't see a lot of that in uh, surf media. A lot of like smart, writing and uh the whole bit where you open up about loving balls before before the viewer realized that it's the dog talking about balls was like it was a very clever moment i remember being in the theater at the save the waves film festival watching that thing and being like huh who's that guy that's a good line (laughs) i gotta give a lot of credit to uh ben knight um who he was the one who helped write that and you know make make that happen but um, ben made damnation right he the made him yeah and then a lot of teams. yeah he made um that was he did denali after after that and we had we had denali was like a work a, a pro- process you know we filmed it right before Denali passed um he'd been with me for 14 and a half years um just kind of my dog that had the best friend that had been with me through everything through a lot of life and that's why i wrote the book about the whole thing um and so we had a cut all ready for film festivals and you know i had to pull it because it just wasn't vulnerable enough it just didn't it kind of just rang hollow and so i had to kind of go back to the drawing board and restart and ben had offered to help with it and i he had just finished damnation and i was like you know you need a break you're working on that for four years it was rough on him to make that film work because it's just such a Imagine trying to make a, a film about dams. And it's make a, it yeah, it's a fucking movie about dams. Keep <laughs> right. people on the edge of their seat. There's water. It's flowing. There's a point where the water can't flow because of cement. 
now tell an awesome story yeah. about that. Yeah, there's fish, there's these concrete yeah. walls. It's like, yeah. Yeah, so. fish are hard too because they don't have eyebrows so we don't empathize with them. <laughs> <laughs> we don't give a shit about fish. <laughs> Make yeah. a movie about Bambi, that's a lot easier. Yeah, totally. There's a, a Bengal tiger. Yeah. tiger. <laughs> Those things got eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, that it was it was a process to get that film out there, but it, you know, it went it kind of went nuts online. I don't like saying the word viral these days because it's it doesn't feel funny anymore. Um, uh, <laughs> that's sorry, that's not funny. Um, no, no, exactly. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of I think dark humor coming out these days. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so I um I want to ask you about the decision to pull the initial cut that you said rang hollow and go back to the drawing board. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was in that first cut that you, that was not there or any, any scenes specifically in it that were there that you needed to take out. Um, and the reason that I asked is because I, I felt like Denali um, hit a, a, a um, point of vulnerability and, um, was real in a way that very few surf films um, are. And I think it's, it's so easy to just miss the mark. And if you do even by a little bit, even, I've, I've, you know, made, I've made things personally where like I was really proud of 90% of it. And then there was like one bit in it that just smelled like cheese. And, and now that's out there and I don't feel good about sharing it because there's that little stinky bit of cheese in that one section <laughs> and, oh, and and i i think that that's an important moment to choose to pull back um and i was curious about your mental process through that time um really i mean a lot of it was filmed i was working with a couple filmmaker friends and um a lot of it we kind of made to be metaphors and uh kind of try to use symbolism and metaphors to try to visually visual metaphors to try to convey, you know, this transition from being a, you know, part of, you know, growing into manhood and like, you know, going through life with this other being and like, you know, I remember like reading the voiceover and then having this voiceover actor read it. And it was like, just, it was so earnest, but just so it wasn't saying anything. It just, it, you know, it was like, it was all there, but it just didn't, it didn't leave any feeling. It was just like, whoa, okay, I just watched something. And and a lot of that I have to take responsibility for because I was really scared to share my story in any way that would be, I, I'm just a naturally a private person and I grew up really shy and, you know, being a photographer, like for up until the social media days, I you did, nobody knew what you looked like really, unless you were in photos. It was kind of like you were in you know, the byline. You're just like you know people knew your name, but not who you were. And um, I don't think I was quite ready to go there yet. And you know, I'd worked with um, a few mentor counselor, this woman who like had worked with Damigo Ruiz and like was, I mean, and we could go deep into that too. But she was someone who like really like helped me go deep and it was that during that year and a half that I was trying to figure out how to make the film I felt like she helped me see who I was as a person and 
and when I finally, you know, I tried to, I tried to go through the footage. I tried to make a cut. It was too personal. I had a friend try to make a cut and he couldn't quite go there because it was just, he was close to my, me and and all. And just like, I gave the footage to Ben and he, he was pretty scared to, you know, to Ben Knight and he was pretty scared to go there too. Cause he just, it was, it was like a really challenging thing. And a lot of, even his like, you know, business partner like told him it was a terrible idea to even take the story on. So for um, people who, who might not know why it was a challenging story to tell, um, just give a little detail about that. Um, it involved, I mean, a dog and a, me, a man, you know, and, and a, he was just with me through a long, for a long time. And so to try to, to, to try to make a story about a man and his dog hit home, you have to like have something that gives you a latch onto and it, it, it can't, it has to be relatable. It can't be just, I mean, it couldn't be just about me. It was, it had to be something that everybody could see themselves in, you know? And so, um, really and so when i when i finally was like okay i'm ready to just like let my story be out there because i'd gone through uh when i was in my late 20s i'd gone through colon cancer and really like that was one of the biggest things that he had gone my dog had gone through with me was was that and i'd been married super young and got a divorce and like and all that stuff was like part of the story but i we could only tell so much in the you know seven eight minute film and so um i I did an interview with um, Ben Knight's girlfriend at the time, um, Katie Klingsborn, and she she like took my whole story down. I said, "All right, Ben, like my story's wide open. Go wherever you want." And there's a line in there just about you know me having a colostomy bag that is like I think one of the best lines in the film. Like I felt really bad for Ben because he had you know he had to wear a poop into a plastic bag and attach his stomach for the rest of his life, mainly because he had to pick up my poop it was a great line but it plays the bags you know and it's like genius you know like that was but at the same time it was like nobody other than my friends knew i had to cost me back because it's like you know i because i uh was a climber i my ostomy nurses let me put like literally choose the surgery site and put that ostomy lower than most people would have one and so like you know you can't really see it you know it's not like noticeable in general and i'm able to control it in a way that i can where it is a really small little, you know, appliance there. And so that, did you say that they, they put it lower on you because you were a climber? Yeah. Because if I, if they would normally they put it, um, if you've, you know, the best easiest way to describe it is if you have appendix surgery, they call it McBurney's point. I was in sports medicine before and that's what my background was in. So they call it McBurney's point and it's like between your, um, the, your, the point of your hip and your bottom of your, um, or your, in your belly button. If you like, go halfway between those um that's like it's like below your ribs basically and so normally the normally the ostomy is like up a lot higher and because if you're wearing a harness when you fall your harness gets pulled upwards um and i didn't want to like have that violent motion go past a very you know like your an ostomy is like it's the end of your colon essentially and so it's like it's a very vulnerable thing and it's sensitive tissue and so I just felt like that was dangerous and it would also be very uncomfortable. Um, and so I like, they sent me home with all these samples and I like stuck them to my chest or or to my belly and like figured out where they would go and basically put it as low as possible without interfering with, you know, anything else that would, you know, my junk or anything like that. So it just kind of made it like, so it was in the best spot. And, and my ostomy nurse told me in 30 years of 
her profession. I was the only person she ever like sent home and let like mark the spot. Like usually they would just do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did you put your climbing harness on and see oh, yeah. where it would pull? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was all surreal. Like, I mean, that was probably the most, you know, being 29 years old, you know, kind of a peak of my like, you know, athletic and masculine just self it was like um pretty pretty huge blow to the ego and you know just just (laughs) my psyche to like suddenly realize i was gonna have to like wear this thing you know that was gonna always be there and so it was a really like challenging experience to go through to have that surgery um so to go home and like have to put all these stick all these things to me and be like i'm gonna wear this every day and so it was wild so you got this surgery and then also went through chemo to put the cancer into remission yeah so it was about a year of treatment and so i they first shrank it with radiation and then i had a a pick line you know that was like you know tube going into the crook of my arm that and had to wear a chemo pump every day for like four months and like basically like a chemo pump is a little thing that's like the size of a i don't know vhs type or um game boy or whatever and like the uh both things that are obsolete <laughs> for a long time <laughs> um, yeah that's a retro callback mario every day on my game boy. i'm some four-on-one video magazine skateboard movies and call it a day <laughs> um, basically it's like this thing that they reload the cartridge once a week and it like every 10 minutes you hear this like whirring sound and it's just like giving you a nice jolt of poison <laughs> it's really just like a reminder like you know you wear it 24 7 and you know i was like climbing and biking and doing all this stuff at the time and had to had to just put it in my pocket and cord you know the- what was uh what was it like for you when denali was released how did your life change from oh the oh the film when the actual movie the when the movie was released did your life change at all um yeah it was it was definitely we put it out in film festival form first we did a couple of smaller festivals like five point and uh and then mountain film which is one of my favorite festivals still um and telluride and and then we put it online in the summertime and it yeah it went from like five thousand views the first day to a million the second day to like eight million in a week and so it definitely was a very interesting experience like suddenly having a personal story like that i was sharing with my friends essentially um go into the public sphere and then oprah even shared it on her super soul sunday show and which was just wild and um it brought a lot of attention and i mean there's like news anchors like pounding on my door and stuff and i was hiding from them and it was just so weird it was just like weird to do all the interviews and you know all that stuff and so and then suddenly like i felt like people thought they knew me and so i got thousands and thousands of messages people you know sending their personal stories and it was just it was just a really interesting experience to like suddenly have people paying attention to a story that was i was sharing really just to like kind of honor uh my dog um and what he'd been um he'd been there for me through like my mid-20s to my almost almost through my thirties too. And, um, 
that that kind of brought the opportunity to to write essentially write the book um in a lot of ways um because the story was you know people really enjoyed it and um i didn't know i didn't know anything about the publishing world i'd never had aspirations of writing a book i had no idea what what to do and so the only person i knew in the in that space was uh john krakauer um and because i met him and when jimmy chin put out meru um i'd met john through that and i mean obviously knew john's writing um into the wild and into thin air and all those movies and or, or books and movies um and john just you know he he sent me to his editor uh, mark bryant who used to be the editor for outside men's journal and had edited a lot of his books um and he took me under his wing and really helped me just guided me through the process um of how to just finding an agent and um actually I ended up with the same agent as Toby Caldwell um um who's also a Patagonia ambassador and um and just helped walk me through the the process of making a proposal so um it, like writing a book it's so weird being a filmmaker photographer and like in a photograph you can you know you're you're trying to tell an entire story in one frame or a series of photos and then in a film you got you know you have all the other tricks you got you know, the soundtrack the sound you know the, the score the sound design the you know the visuals the narration and all that and then a book it's like you have words <laughs> on a page and there's it's like it's terrifying i mean it's like so it's so much harder to write a book than it is to make a photograph or a film. I'll, I'll say that right now. I have mad respect for authors out there. <laughs> it's like way more respect than I ever had. Yeah. Um, you know, Chris Ryan, he wrote yeah. Sex at Dawn. He's been on my show a ton of times. Um, someone once tweeted at him, oh, Chris just wrote this book because he could get to get laid. And Chris replied, um, writing a book to get laid is like building a helicopter to clean your gutter. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It's, Chris's it's, agent once said, don't write a book unless you absolutely have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first question I got was, what, what's your second book? And I was like, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, My obituary. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that happens. I don't know if I, well, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying never, but I just... I need a, I need a break. Um, but yeah, it's that writing, it was an interesting process. It was really cathartic, you know, to write a personal story for sure. But it, um, and then sharing it has been pretty powerful too, just to, just to see what people have related to. And I put a lot of things in there that I wasn't expecting people to relate to, um, little, little weird things that I threw in that were just kind of anecdotes about, growing up a really sensitive kid, you know, dealing with being a, you know, a man that, you know, was felt like was really empathic and, you know, you know, just felt a lot. It's mm. like, and, you know, got told I shouldn't cry by teachers, you know, things like that, you know, it's like, it's guy, a lot of people have written me just saying like, you know, man, I felt that way my whole life. I just didn't have anybody put into words, you know, and it's a, uh, did John Krakauer give you any advice that you remember? I mean, I, when I first reached out to him, it was more like, what do I do? Like I have people reaching out about potentially writing a book, but I don't feel like they have my best interest at heart. You know, it was a lot of 
you know, the sharks were circling, so to speak. They saw something they could cash in on. And, you know, there was even Hollywood interest initially. And, you know, I didn't feel that that was earnest, you know, interest. It was more like, oh, we could just make this happen, you know. And so John just basically said, hey, if you have any interest in writing your story down, um, now is the time to do it because, you know, a lot of writers, you know, wait their whole lives to have the opportunity to write a book. And so, you know, think about it. And, and if you want to do it, I would do it now. Um, and my friend Shannon, um, Etheridge, who's like, she was Jimmy's producer for a long time. Um, and has produced Jimmy a lot of, yeah, Jimmy Chin. And, you know, when he was first doing a lot of film stuff, she helped him and she, she's, um, been a dear friend and also, uh, um, worked on a lot of the films I've worked on, um, and recently, um, and she just said, you know, I remember distinctly after Denali, like went crazy online, the film, um, remember her telling me just like, Ben, I think before you give your story to anyone, before you sell it to, or like let anybody write a magazine article, like I would highly recommend you get it down on paper yourself because once someone else spins it, like it's, it's out there. And, and, she goes, you need to get it down on paper first. And I didn't think it was going to take me four years to do that, but <laughs> it did. And, and I'm really grateful for her for saying that because when she said that, and then John told me like, you might want to think about this. It just, it got the wheels turning and it, you know, everything I do, like I overthink, that's just my personality. I overthink it and like crazy before I actually act. And so it's like, it's amazing the amount of work that goes into a 300 page book. It's crazy. So do you remember the day that you that you sat down to start writing it and what that was like yeah because mark had told me basically you just need to and and david larabelle my um agent over at caa he just said hey uh we need a, an outline you know we need a chapter we need one full chapter and we need an outline of each other chapter and so i had to basically like sketch out the entire arc of the story and and so the actually what the intro to the book of kind of like the um prologue or whatever um the little story i tell at the beginning was actually the first thing i really wrote down it was i just remembered that felt like the most <clears throat> one of those poignant moments when i'd found out i had the, the have to have the surgery i got a second opinion i realized i had to have the surgery to have a colostomy bag. I thought I could avoid it. And honestly, being that that was one of the hardest days because I was like, it was just, a, it was a, they basically said, Hey, you can either have this surgery or we could try not to do it. You have 50% chance of it recurring. Um, and you'll probably be, you know, just your life's gonna be miserable anyway, cause things aren't going to work right in your system. Um, and so I remember it was just basically like I d went into dove in the ocean um, because I just had to rinse off all that like awful news and Denali followed me and he like a wave caught him and <laughs> it's just kind of like a little anecdote but it sort of summarized a lot of a lot of what um, I was feeling at the time and there's a line actually at the beginning of there basically like that's a real metaphor for right now because it was like it was basically all his paraphrase it's like something about um, you know there there are times when like we like any 
we think we're in control, but we're not. And the best thing we can, we just have to write basically like let go of the control we think we have and just let the wave carry us through, you know, and like just allow the wave to catch us and carry us through because we think we're in control, but that's always an illusion. <laughs> it's like, and so you're on a rock spinning through space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and this is, I mean, think about this, right? I mean, it's like, we're, this is the first time in anybody who's under the age of 75. It's like, that's felt this on a global scale, you know, like, unless you've lived through world war two, it's like literally like nobody has felt, you know, this sort of global, like feeling of like fear and anxiety and like, uncertainty about the future you know we've kind of just been stumbling along for the last couple decades you know and it's like things haven't been always going so well and so it's like this is like a it's a little bit of a it's not a little slap it's a giant punch in the nose you know so yeah i feel like a lot of my friends and people who i've had on this podcast are handling it rather well because there's a type of person, um, you're definitely in this category, a lot of big wave surfers are in this category, um, who are very experienced driven people. And for a long time, they've, they haven't waited to have those experiences that they really wanted to go get after. And, um, they've purposely put themselves, you know, you very much so on the climbing wall, um, in situations that make you uncertain of your ability, your, place in life, who you thought you were, you're kind of continuously shattering your ego um, on your own accord. So now when this situation happens, um, I think that it's a lot harder for people who have never faced that really frightened place in themselves. Um, and it's a completely new feeling for a huge amount of us. But there is a small sector of people, and I think that it tends to be people who um, have used nature to test themselves who are handling this all on some kind of like existential level a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I've kind of always, you know, whether it's friends or romantic relationships or whatnot, I always like, I remember like having this conversation with like Greg Long or, um, Eduardo um, Garcia from like that film charged. Um, yeah. Uh, um, like people who have gone through near death experiences and like, or experiences that like were really challenging. I feel like there's always this sense of um, you, there's a camaraderie and you can, you can relate to someone so much deeper when someone's actually faced the real stuff, you know, like it's, it's like, there's a lot of people that have like, I mean for no fault or and like i'm i'm envious at times i just kind of seem to like skate through life without having to deal with anything too heavy but there's a there's like really like when you get you get put to the you know you get your nose shoved in the fire it's like when you really that 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 part of us that we don't access we only access those resources and that resilience in a, in a time of crisis you know and, and i think that we're already seeing that shift. You know, you go through this, like you go through the stages of grief with a situation like this, you go through like, you know, anger, deny, denial and anger and then acceptance and, and then people spring into action. And it's like really cool to see what's already come of this, you know, even in the short amount of time. And obviously we're, we're just getting to the thick of it, 
but it's people dig deep and it's like and that and experiences like this really force growth that wouldn't you wouldn't otherwise have you know it's like that refining process and it's it's you know it's it's not the most painful growth brings or most painful experiences bring the most beautiful growth really so yeah and it also can spring people into action as you said i think that a lot of people are having that moment that um you know, a lot of our crew of friends have had many times where you're like, fuck, if I ever get out of this, I promise I'm going to dot, 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 you know, buy that plane ticket, learn French, marry that woman, take the trip abroad, you know, whatever it is, like difficulty forces that step to be taken. And I think everyone has had that moment um, at least once late at night. I mean, if you haven't had that existential moment of like, holy shit, are we all going to die? What's, you know, what if the R naught just grows by 60% on this? And like, this is it. Like, what, what are we? What have these experiences been that we've done in life? And what are we going to do on the other side of it? Yeah. It's very clarifying. It is. And I mean, like going through, you know, I mean, I was, like I said, I was in my late 20s when, I got diagnosed with colon cancer. And so I was went from like doing everything I love to do. And like, you know, I'd come home or like I've come back to my storage unit, dump a bag, pick up a bag and leave and go off on some other adventure. You know, like I was, it was just basically like connecting one amazing experience to the next. And suddenly like, you know, I didn't know anything except for the day, the day, that week, the next day, you know, what the tests were, what the next treatment was. And then I didn't have even the ability to, you know, I'd go hang out at Smith Rock or go, go, you know, maybe go get, go paddle out in some smaller ways, but I couldn't really like, I didn't have the physical capacity anymore to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, after the surgeries, I couldn't even like sit up in bed, you know? And so it's just like, I mean, you've had, you know, obviously experiences where you've been knocked flat too from, you know, not being able to do what you love. And, those are clarifying there those are the things that like make us realize that it's human it's the connections we have the friends we have the people that we love um that matter and it's not it's the relationships it's not so much the you know how rad you can be you know yeah yeah the first few people that you texted when you learned about this pandemic are the ones that matter in your life yeah right yeah And, and the ones that you you know i don't know it's just like it's it's been really cool to see people you know say hey like i'm just checking in on you <laughs> like what's well how are you doing you know and that's it's um yeah it's a powerful experience um <clears throat> when you, before uh and and i want to kind of figure out how i want to ask this question um what was your relationship like with climbing before you got cancer um and more specifically, I'm going to see if I can thread this question in a way that will be intelligible. What was the conversation within your own head like? Um, example might be like angry, always frustrated with yourself, stoked. Like I, I, I only ask that because I think that we, we see people do their craft, whatever it is, and really we have no idea what's going on inside their own head while they're doing that. Um, great example of that is, uh, the tennis player, Andre Agassi, who wrote the book open great book. If, if anyone hasn't checked that one out, like I don't even play tennis and I love that book. He talks about how he hated tennis for his whole life. 
no one knew. He had this mm. angry relationship with it, and it kind of grew over time. But um, I'm just going to leave that super long-winded question there and let you take it wherever you want. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had an interesting relationship with climbing anyway. I just I I always had this like push pull because once I when I really started climbing at you know higher number grades or whatever and started like realizing that I was good at what I was doing and could push myself I started at the same time seeing kind of how selfish that pursuit was as well you know and so I photography gave me a way to like figure out a way to you know expand on that so to speak and like and tell other people's stories and not just focus on you know one specific move I couldn't do over and over and and but honestly before I got sick I was more way more focused and enamored by people that were doing stuff at higher grades you know like somebody doing a you know I mean in climbing it's all about numbers and you know like somebody doing something incredible or you know like some epic line or something and so it's just it's I was more impressed with that and probably sought to document that a lot more and you know I had a lot of my own goals that were lofty and just you know cared more about those and then once I got sick it shifted more into like you know a little bit more about the people behind the climbs and like you know more just the experiences of hanging out with friends and you know going on trips and you know like the people I was with and like letting go of all the you know the the BS and just kind of like focusing on the people that really I wanted to hang out with instead of like you know, following somebody around because they were going to, you know, they had great sponsors and, you know, could get me published or whatever, you know, it was like a, it was more a focus on the the human connection rather than the, the, the superficial. That's really cool. Yeah. I think that in any competitive environment, there tends to be a, a gaping um, frequency of insufficiency that a lot of people feel because they couldn't, you know, get that next, you know, number, you know, you know, and there's a lot of not enoughness, especially in American culture that motivates people. Um, and it can't, and that not enoughness feeling can be a very motivating, uh, emotion, but it tends to, uh, have a way of metastasizing over time and, uh, turning people into less happy humans. Um, Whereas, as you just said very well, I think that that experience of going out into nature and feeling whole in a certain way, like just going and cruising with your friends, having a good time, you get it or you don't, but that's smaller than the experience overall, is um, it's a subtle shift, but I think that it's a really powerful one. Yeah, and I also, I mean, a lot of my friends, I was always, you know, like, a lot of people were like on more of the you know they go to the Himalaya or they go do all these incredible super dramatic expeditions to these places and spend three four months you know on these projects and I always thought that that was what I was going to do eventually and then you know suddenly being laid flat and then having you know a surgery that you know kind of made it more challenging to just logistically more challenging and made it made a 
I just took a long time to get my strength back. And I realized that I didn't care so much about that as much. And I, I, it made me focus on my own backyard and focus on the, the places that I really enjoyed going and, and, and less about like going to the most exotic and most incredibly photogenic places, you know, and like, it's easy to get caught in that jet, you know, the whole, like, I'm just going to fly here, fly here, fly here. And like, and forget about all the beauty that we have within it's almost like the online dating thing. It's like, you know, there's always something better. And so he just, it's hard to start to like, you know, and just like look at what you've actually got and be grateful for it. And it's interesting how um, an experience like going through cancer or like, you know, what we're going through right now as a global society, you know, forces us to remember what we have and instead of like looking for what might be out there. Yeah. Less fucks will be given after this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll forget like every, <laughs> it's just human nature to like go back to normal and be like, Oh yeah, that didn't really happen. Did it? <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, I feel like this is going to shift humanity in a pretty, you know, people are different after a crisis. Like, and it's, 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 you know, yeah. Especially when a crisis or any kind of event can offer someone a good feeling that they didn't know they were lacking. We live in one of the most isolated countries in the world. The highest suicide rate of um, any person in America is upper middle class white men. Um, why is that? These are the people who we say won the game of America and now they're killing themselves. Um, and I think that what this crisis has done kind of ironically is connected a lot of people um, because it's the first time that they feel necessary, maybe in their entire lives, where their community needs them, they're coming together, maybe not physically, but emotionally, there is that kind of tribal bond that people are feeling for the first time ever. But um, you know, what, what we know is that people really like living in tribes. Um, Sebastian Younger, uh, the author of Tribe, writes about how there were many cases um, when uh, Europeans were conquering the West where um, prisoners of prisoners that had been taken by the Native Americans and then released would flee back to live with the Native Americans because they enjoyed that way of egalitarian living so much more than the way that white people were. And it never happened the, op the opposite way. Whenever a Native American was, was freed, he would, you know, they would run back to their tribe because they enjoyed that um, feeling of community that was lacking um, in the other world. So, my, so I wonder, you know, I think that a lot of stuff will go back to normal, like once the economy gets going again, but I wonder what kind of communities will potentially be retained because people are feeling this kind of like energetic connection that they haven't felt before. Yeah. I, I, I've heard um, Sebastian speak on that and read that, that part of, uh, listen to the audiobook for tribe and it's like it, it is a it's fascinating and and part of that really played into my thinking when I moved to a smaller coastal community to you know kind of decide to put my roots down here you know my you know it's a smaller place but I can grow my own food I can go spearfishing you know I can go you know deer elk hunting it's like there's a lot of ways of living sustainably but also then my parents moved out here from Michigan like three years ago and you know they're only 15 minutes away but it's like it's amazing to like work on the house with my dad and like have that more of a you know less like oh I'll see you like at Christmas and 
Thanksgiving, you know, it's more like, Hey, no, we're all connected. And, and, you know, I, I've had a lot of friends as their fathers recently and I want to like spend that, those years with my dad and like be able to like learn from him and have those, have that real time, you know, and quality time. And, and same with just living it, you know, all, all my neighbors, you know, like one's a you know, commercial fisherman, one's a surfboard shaper, one, you know, it's like there's there, everybody here like helps each other out and, you know, you, you trade stuff and it's more like living, you know, like a North shore of Oahu or something. It's more like that scene than, than like living in a city where you, you know, everybody just, you know, you try to get together and everybody text bails, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's like it's t- it takes a month to like, finally hang out and have a conversation at a loud show you know it's like oh dude i live in la part-time it's it was so weird for me when people would just cancel last minute as a standard i was like what the f-? yeah like that yeah. doesn't that didn't happen in santa cruz yeah. growing up if you said you're gonna be somewhere you were gonna be there like yeah. we made plans you know you can't back out what the hell but yeah it's very uh kind of accepted in in certain cultures yeah That's the ridiculous. um the whole the thing about being able to see your dad i think is really important and poignant for a lot of people right now um and i think that uh i think you could do a, a there there's a really interesting story to be done right now through this pandemic on mentorships because we're being isolated and specifically old young people are being isolated from old people which traditionally was this really great aspect of life where the older person would be able to bequeath knowledge onto the younger person, right. And help help them grow and mature on this human exist, you know, in this human existence. But right now that's being broken apart even more and more. And I bet you could do a, uh, someone can use the idea if they think it's cool, but I think that there's a really cool story to be done on, mentorships and the loss of that physically through this pandemic well i mean i think that the last um the last film i made was about uh, doug peacock and that film grizzly country that um and i saw that it was great and thank you i was like you know he was he's like super close with you know he was one of ed abby's best friends and um you know with yvonne and tom brokaw and that whole crew and but a lot of people in our generation like literally d- didn't know who Doug was. And I mean, he was Hey Duke and Monkey Ranch Gang, you know, he's like, a, he's a legend, but, and my friend Annie Nyborg at um, Peak Design, the camera bag and um, manufacturer, um, she grew up with Doug's daughter and was like, Ben, we have to do this story. And he, she kept bugging me about it. And I was like, I don't have time. We got to finish this book. And, and she just kept saying like, no, we got to do this. And I remember just sitting down with Doug for the first interview and I was like, Oh, Oh, wow. Like this guy has <laughs> so, I mean, every word he said, I was like, this could be, you know, like you could just do an entire quote book from that guy. It was just like one liner after one liner after one liner. I mean, just so much knowledge, so much humor. And, you know, he's in his late seventies and it's like people just the whole like dismissing of the older generation right now, you know, in, in so many people's minds, like is it's we're missing out on so much it's like that there's so much wisdom to be had that only comes with living and and so so back up a little bit um monkey wrench gang is a really well-known book that edward abbey the writer um made and and who does doug play in that book 
So it was like uh, the character George Hayduke was loosely based on, uh, well, very, <laughs> it was actually very much based on uh, Doug Peacock. So, and so it, um, you know, he was a Vietnam vet, um, was a Green Beret medic and, you know, saw a lot, basically came back to the Yellowstone, went deep into the bush to just kind of like get himself back. So he had a horrible PTSD from seeing like, you know, you know, villages and children blown up and have, you know, just like his friends basically that he's working with. And basically, the, you know, having encounters with grizzly bears saved his life and like helped him like give a sense of purpose. And, you know, he had some like really intense experiences and, and it gave him a sense of like, I want to preserve, you know, the, the habitat for these bears. And, and he became a really, really an amazing conservationist because of it. And, um, but just such a unique character, you know, just what habitat was he trying to conserve? Um, the Yellowstone grizzly, especially. Um, so, because there's just a lot of threats to, you know, with the ranchers and, you know, with everything and, um, grizzlies are just kind of like seen as a, a threat and he just wanted to make people understand that they're, you know, they're incredible beings. And, uh, so, so did you go out to Yellowstone to shoot that film? Um, we, he lives in emigrant Montana, um, part of the year. And, um, so I spent a lot of time at his house and I'm um, near Yellowstone. Um, and we use a lot of archival footage from, there was an old film uh, called Peacock's War that won mountain film in like the late eighties, um, was a feature. And it was, you know, like it was a late eighties film. So there's a lot of, <laughs> it was pretty funny to watch, but there's a lot of incredible footage of Doug out in the wild, you know, lugging around huge camera gear. And I mean, there's funny footage of uh there's this like american sportsman or some show like that where he's like doug and arnold schwarzenegger are sitting in a creek like half naked like there's just i mean that guy's lived so much just sitting down for lunch with him at mountain film last year um was and just getting to intro the film with him was so mind-blowing i imagine him having very calloused hands Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> like uh, a like an inch thick callus yeah. on the top of his knuckle. Yeah. Yeah. He's a funny guy, man. Uh, yeah. The last the last film time we introed the film together, we were just like he like went. We were supposed to. It was like a five minute Q and A to start the night because he needed. We needed to start the whole like shorts program or whatever. And he like, of course, he went for like fifteen minutes. And like, I remember he just started howling at the end of the end of the Q and A, and we just like walked off stage. And I'm like, well done, sir. <laughs> Packed audience, you know. Wow. Uh, he just, yeah. Can you explain what the issue is in Yellowstone with the grizzlies and the ranchers? Yeah, I mean, anytime you draw a boundary. Um, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, wildlife does not, you know, they, they migrate, the, the migratory paths of, of any large mammal are, they're massive, you know, and so you can't just like, you know, draw a line like a county line or a national park boundary and think they're going to stay there. And so anytime there's humans and um, grizzly coming into contact plus the all the beetle kill like um and the climate change changes so that they're just losing food and so they're wandering a lot further what's and beetle then, kill um the pine beetle that that kills like a lot of the the trees and you know that you know it's just uh all these things because the the, the beetles used usually were killed off um in the winter by cold winters but as the as you know warming happens and the you know there's less of a deep freeze those the 
those beetles like the habitat for them goes higher and higher in the tree line and so suddenly like all this habitat is lost because these trees are just dying and um so there's just it's a complex issue and you know there's a lot of things at play but really it's a you know there's people that own huge swaths of land there's some ranchers that have like allowed you know humans and bears to cohabitate and allowed them to come in and there's some people that are like i see a bear i'm gonna shoot a bear you know and and there's just a very limited number left and so it's um uh Doug works a lot with Save Our Yellowstone Grizzly and you know he and Jeff Bridges and a lot of other people have worked really hard to help get that story out there um but it was just really incredible to work with him and spend time with him and learn from him about about that issue and you know we didn't see any bears when we were on that shoot but we saw a lot of tracks and he showed he showed us a lot of the habitat so do you know what the legality is uh around shooting a grizzly bear in Yellowstone Oh man, there was, I mean, all that stuff, there's always like loopholes and a lot of those, such like Wyoming and Montana and stuff about like, oh, they were threatening my, you know, my land or my like livestock or whatnot. And so right. I don't know all the current things right now, but it's, it's definitely like a, yeah. a thorny issue. Um, I know it's complicated. I know that there's um, a certain distance that a grizzly has to be away from you. You know, if, if you shoot a, a grizzly and claim that it's self-defense, the grizzly has to be a certain distance close to you. Um, and if not, then you can be fined. I don't know what areas those are, but I was on, I was listening to Steve Ranella, the hunter talk about that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, all those things like you know depending on how they're enforced and so you know that stuff just gets dug pretty fired up because it's like there's just so few left um and so it's it's uh um anytime honestly you know there's anytime you know our our human development infringes on you know the territory you know the the, the habitat of a, a being as majestic as that you know is is interesting like I mean, I even like where I live, there's like, there's black bear and like where my lot where I'm building, like, you know, one used to like use it for its toilet, you know, and it's like, now it's not here anymore. And it's, I feel like felt bad about it, you know, cause it's like for a couple of years I watched, you know, like I could see the sign and never saw him, but it was like, he was out there already, he's always around, you know, and there's a lot of national forests near here where there's like bear and cougar and, but they have plenty of food, you know, like, and so it's not, they're not, it's not a threat, but grizzlies are just, you know, it's the human encounters can be frightening um if you know you get between one of the mama bear and her cubs it's like it's it's not going to be a fun experience for sure yeah but it's a hell of a lot more dangerous to drive a car on your way to go see a grizzly bear <laughs> exactly i mean i remember um watching chipper bro you know you remember him from Pat patagonia of course. Like, when he was teaching shout us out to lesson. chipper bro the yeah. ultimate frisbee champion at patagonia <laughs> headquarters oh man what a what a legend um he was giving me a, a surf lesson at you know mondos or somewhere in ventura and uh i i was just kind of standing back watching and he's like he's like somebody asked a question about sharks and and he's like he just pointed up at the 101 he goes those are the only sharks you need to worry about driving your car he goes that's way more dangerous than surfing any day let me tell you vending machines kill more people than sharks <laughs> He'll shake the vending machine and it falls on him and crushes him to death. Kyle Tierman, statistician. That's me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that the point that you made about mentors is um, is powerful, man. I um, 
Because because older folks have so many stories and so few people ask. Yeah. They just feel like they, they automatically default to, I can't relate. And it's like, well, do you think they just suddenly became 70, 80 years old? Like they've lived the same years you have. Yeah. They're you with more experience. So why wouldn't you want to ask you with more experience what to do in life? That yeah. seems like it might be kind of useful. But we, we put so much emphasis on youth and beauty. We ask all those people what their stories are, but they haven't lived enough life, so they don't have any fucking stories to tell. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I'm in my, you know, almost my mid-40s now, and I don't feel different inside. I know my limitations, but it's like, you still have the same, like, you know, like it's, it's just like realize how much less you care about what other people think of you, you know, and like all those, you like care way less about the things that like occupied too much of your time when you're younger. And like, and so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to like suddenly be, you know, I've been doing, I've been in photography for now 20 years and suddenly having like photographers write me and be like, Oh, like what should I do to do, you know, get to where you are. And it's like such a weird shift because I still feel like a complete Grom, you know, I don't, I'm like learning every day. And I, I feel like when you lose that curiosity is when your like career just comes to a screeching halt and you, know, you fall off the cliff, you know? And so it's like, I don't know every day. I'm just like, how did I get here? And like, how do I keep it going? You know? And, and, it's like anytime you finally settle and relax and think that you've made it is when you're, <laughs> you're about to smash the brick wall. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I was having a conversation with, um, Jim Fadiman once. He's the guy who wrote the psychedelic oh, yeah. explorers guide. Um, <laughs> he lives down the street from me, but, uh, we have coffee periodically and he's one of the best storytellers I know. And, uh, he once we were talking about settling down and he's like settling down. You're settling and you're going down. That's amazing. <laughs> I gotta remember that. Damn, Jim so good. Boom. <laughs> Only someone who's microdosed for 50 years straight would say something like that. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you, uh, yeah, the, the mentor thing is, um, it's a powerful one. I, I, was, I was happy that you came out with, with that documentary about, about that guy. I thought it was very well done. Um, go for it. Oh, I was just, I, I was curious what you're going to have you, you're going to ask something. Have you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I did want to ask you, um, about, uh, your, what you said earlier about getting older and, and caring less what people think about you. Um, because that doesn't always happen naturally. It tends to but sometimes you meet old people that still really care what people think about them. And I was wondering what you think has allowed you to relinquish that grip. Um, a few people have posted um, a few quotes from the book recently that have made me uh, like the kind of relate to that. I, it's, I mean, first of all, having someone like, quote something you've written is like such a surreal experience <laughs> because a lot of times I was like the book was such a you know like a lot of times like when you're in an interview or something you kind of forget what you said or especially writing a book over four years and and to see something you've written and be like well I made sense there it's like kind of a wild experience but it was basically like 
um, something about like, like, you know, letting go of all the negative things and clinging to the positive, letting go of the negative because your life depends on it. Because I feel personally, I feel like in, internalizing pain and feelings of hurt and anxiety, like is what I feel like manifested in cancer and myself. Like that's my own, you know, theory. And I know how toxic stress can be. And so and how much that just affects your immune system. Um, and which right now I've given a lot of thought to you because it's so hard not to be anxious right now. Um, but that is what makes us more vulnerable. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's not that I don't notice what people think of me. It's just, I try to care less about, you know, the negative thing. I remember like Tim Ferriss or somebody said once I go, don't feed the trolls. Like the best thing you do to kill the trolls is to like live your best life. And like, you know, like, try to focus on, you know, anything you put your focus on is where you're going to go. And, you know, like if you focus on worry and worst case scenarios, like, well, that's, that's, you know, it's like looking where you drive, you're going to run your car right off the cliff. Yeah. Um, and so it's more about realizing that the people who lift you up and the people that, you know, not just it's not like friends that just lift you up it's like the friends that can call you out too you know those are the people that matter in your life but it's like it's less focus on caring what everybody thinks I, I guess is a better way of putting it because it's like impossible to please everybody you know mm -hmm. and you know there's there's the one star reviews of the book that are people like you know i didn't want to read about the hard stuff because you know it sounded like ben was writing about his problems like this light like i was like yeah guess what life life has some of those and like it's how you <laughs> overcome those you know <laughs> best of luck sir <laughs> on your journey to infinity uh, read, read you're gonna have one or two speed bumps <laughs> yeah read only read the happy stories um but um yeah, that's a good that's a good way to think about it. Um, care what only some people think about you, not what everyone thinks about you, and only people who you respect. And it's like it's not like living in an. I mean, right now I feel like it's a, that's a little bit of a touchy thing because like it's easy to live in an echo chamber. You don't want to live in an echo chamber where you only have somebody kissing your ass. You know, you want someone. You want to be in somewhere where somebody's going to call you out when you're you're on the wrong path. You know, because and so it's like finding a community that will support you and and like tell you when you're off course, you know, that's, that's what <sighs> it's so nice when people just tell you nice things about yourself though. Uh, yeah. It's very but, seductive. Yeah. But it's also not a, not very sustainable either. Yeah. Yeah. You fall off a big cliff eventually, yeah. but up until that point when everyone surrounding you is telling you that you're awesome, it feels, well, it feels great. <laughs> it feels good for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's like that like molly experience you're like it's wonderful and like oops <laughs> yeah yeah you're like i love everyone and then for the next three days you're like everyone hates me <laughs> i have no happy juice left <laughs> yeah yeah i think that mdma can be a very powerful um substance when in a controlled environment when you're really trying to feel that like warm glow of love um, I did a podcast with a doctor named Peter Atia um, a while ago. Um, super smart dude, but he, he also he had a great line. He said, uh, "I'm not convinced that MDMA isn't the most important compound um, on planet Earth right now because of the empathy that it can induce in people and how much it shatters contempt, which is this." 
such a, it's such a yucky feeling that so many people hold on to is contempt for themselves or for other people. And it, you know, makes them drive their car into really, um, weird places in life, you know? And I, I think that, um, MDMA can be incredibly helpful to shatter these ideas of separateness. I think that's true with, you know, um, I mean, I, I mean, I've listened to a lot of your interviews with those that have, you know, obviously Jim Fadiman is one of the pioneers of that world and was studying it very deeply in, in the seventies before it was shut down just with mental health and psychedelics. And, you know, I battled severe depression and anxiety as a, you know, as a kid and, you know, from the, my earliest memories, you know, and, and so I was always terrified that, you know, they were, you know, psychedelics were bad and, you know, acid would melt your brain and all the stories we were told. And, but, you know, I ended up working with a shaman, well, who was a body worker that I worked with initially during my cancer treatments. And he helped me, he became a ayahuasca shaman and, you know, in, in Peru. And he's the one who first introduced me to that. And it was like, ironically, the first psychedelic I ever experienced I ever had was an ayahuasca ceremony. And I've since sat for, I think, 15 nights total. Um, and those have been some of those powerful experiences for me to help just with self-acceptance and with, you know, shattering that boundary between, you know, what, what I've realized is like the journaling I've done after those experiences has always been, you realize all the people who have done things for you that you weren't allowed, didn't allow yourself to see, or, you know, the experiences I had, all the guilt I had harbored my entire life that I had held on to, like feeling bad for something I had said to someone or like realizing the things I'd held on to that weren't necessary, you know? And, um, there's a power in, in those experiences. It allows us to have empathy, allows us to see that we're not separate from the other, you know, like there's in our society, it's always like this, you know, like you said, the contempt, there's always that boundary. And that's what, you know, you know, uh, psilocybin and you know lsd and ayahuasca and all these other experiences and mdma can do is like break that barrier down you know and help us see that we are all all one and all and and uh tell me a bit about the ayahuasca experience and how you prepared for it leading up to the ceremony i mean i i remember like listening to some of Michael Pollan's interviews when he wrote um, How to Change Your Mind or after he published How to Change Your Mind and like how he, you know, even though there's a big age difference, I was like thinking about how I had thought the same thoughts, like going into this, it was going to like change my mind and like suddenly like taint me somehow or like make me a different person or like change my belief structure, like everything. And it really all it did is make me see my own mental blocks. And it was a process, you know, it wasn't like the first one was the you know end all be all you have to gradually break down the boundaries and i mean you work with a a legitimate shaman who's really has your best interest in mind like they're not gonna like melt you know like there's um i've had them tell me like it's like i'm not gonna like you know dynamite the concrete wall that somebody has in their mind because it's, it's gonna be really damaging you have to like gradually break that down and you have to be open for it so for me it was like 
it's not so much like there's all the diet stuff that you can do to like prepare, but a lot of that is just like opening yourself up to like, like, Hey, I'm ready to learn. It's like, it's the same as working with a counselor or a a mentor or whatever, you know, type of um, talk therapy you choose to do. It's like, you need to be ready to be challenged in order to have actually heal you. Like it's, there's no, if you're like, I'm fine. I don't need this. I'm good you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to sit there and you might barf a couple of times, but it's like, you're not, you're not actually going to break through that wall to help, you know, get to the other side. And so. What did the whole area look like where you sat uh, for ceremony and what does, uh, what are some details about the ceremony for people who might not know what this kind of thing looks like? I mean, I've sat, in ceremony with every everywhere from two to ten people i've never sat in like a big ceremony but it's like everybody has like a a comfortable little nest so to speak it's like a you sit on a camping pad have a pillow to prop yourself up um you drink like a little shot of you know it's like a couple ounces of really thick not great tasting you know uh boiled down plant matter basically that it doesn't taste the best and it's hard to keep down at first and but it's it's a I've sat with a few shamans that were basically um they used a little bit of, you know, candles and a little sound therapy and you know, there's like the Arcaros, the like uh traditional um Peruvian um from the Shipibo people, like the the songs that people sing. I've I've basically sat in utter darkness and quiet and I've sat with some that there's more like sound making and it's like the the synesthesia of seeing sounds and um the first few i sat in were out in the high desert um in uh, central oregon and so like stepping outside and seeing the stars you know to you know to go take a leak or whatever it's like pretty wild you know and to be (laughs) and i've also sat in cities and like and that is i don't i'm being in a really empathic empathic individual being in a city it's harder to open up and feel completely at ease and so i've tried to only do it in places where that are more remote now um and I have done them out in like more coastal settings as well. And like much more powerful experience. I feel like hmm. to be in a remote setting um, for me personally. Um, but this, the last time I sat um, was a few years ago, or I guess it wasn't a few years ago. It was last summer um, when I was really thinking about the book being released and like really had, had a lot of anxiety about all the people I'd written about in the book and some names were changed, you know, and some of the relationships and things like that. And, but it was more, I just, I felt a lot of responsibility telling other people's putting other people's stories into a book. I just, it was, it was anxiety inducing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the writer Joan Didion once said, uh, every writer is selling someone out. Yeah, it's like it's just feels no it's, two ways about it. If you're telling someone else's story, you have all of the power, and you're playing God. And there's a real um, responsibility in that. Um, and everything's not hunky dory. Sometimes you got to write about someone who is being a dick, and you're being dishonest if you aren't if you're going to say anything otherwise. Yeah, and and so I tried. I had a lot of my editors and my friend Alexis who helped me like as the interim editor. Um, I was really, I was like, 
and everybody who helped me um, in the final edit stages, like I was like, please like let me know if I'm putting words in anybody else's mouth. I don't want I don't want to tell anybody else's story. And so, sitting in that last ceremony, it was a very spontaneous thing. It was like I, heard, I found out about it last minute, so I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. But I was like, I need this right now. And it was during like a beautiful like beautiful weekend, and so like I was able to like go surf and like have like a lot of clarity afterwards and like process things. But I remember. Um, I actually remember my shaman saying that he was, I'm not going to take the full dose because this is very strong medicine and, but you can do whatever you want. And it was like the first time I had said, like, I'm ready for this. I need this. I have all this like four years of like anxiety about writing this book that needs to get out and I'm ready to like go there. And it was uh, ego disillusionment. It was like my, my dog Nori was with me and I was with two, it was only two of us sitting with the shaman and the other, other guy in the, in the ceremony was having trouble. And so she was lying with him for the first half. And I'm always a late, it always takes longer for me to go deep. And I remember starting to settle in and being like, Whoa, this is going to be a tough one. But it was the first experience that I'd had where I felt like instead of being like, I'm letting this go wherever it wants. I felt like I was actually more in charge of where I felt like I had a little bit of a voice in within it. And, um, but the first thing that came at me was a little bit of negativity. I'd had a few experiences with, um, business wise and with, um, personal experiences with a couple of people that were for better lack of description like malignant narcissist and like I'd never dealt with that and or understood what that was truly like and it's it's a mind melt especially for a really sensitive person it doesn't make sense because someone else is living a different reality and like throwing all their wounds at you and and that energy started coming at me initially and maybe it was because the last season of Game of Thrones was on or whatever but I was like very much like thinking about like dragons and things and I was just like I just had this visual of like being having dragon scales and was like putting just like letting those fall down my back and like rearing my wings and i was like fully just like just obliterated that that energy with like dragon fire i was like you're going you're not you're not coming here right now no (laughs) um and then i proceeded to like experience the anxiety of every single thing i had written about every single thing in the book and feeling all the, the all of it all of it like and and then you know i remember my shaman wrapping up ceremony like you okay and i was like i can't move for probably four more hours but i'm fine and 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 nori was lying in the crook of my legs but i felt like i was it was a it was powerful because i was able to process all that fear of writing about my friends and the people i cared about and those that had like you know for they the, the challenging experiences it helped me like get through that but were there any words that came to you that helped you um process that i know that a lot of times it's kind of ineffable and it's more of like a body energetic release that helps you have a new perspective but was there any any um yeah like like moment of clarity that you can explain in getting over that those humps or processing that anxiety well, I think it was like part of the process was getting realizing I had to set boundaries for that negative energy first, which is like, I think we something we have to do every day. Cause it's like easy to like, you know, 
easy right now to like wake up, check your phone, check Twitter, the news or social media and like be like, we're all going to die, you know? <laughs> and like, it's like, and instead, like I try to like go to the Headspace app or something and like have a 10 minute, 15 minute meditation and like clear my head for a moment. And so like, I felt like I needed to first clear the air and then it was, it was really just looking at all those people that I'd written about and be like, and seeing, feeling compassion for them, you know, and for those experiences and also just being gentler with myself, you know, and like being like, yeah, that, that happened. I need to write about that. Um, but yeah, a lot of it's ineffable, but it was more, it's like allowing myself to process all those fears. That's kind of like our, you know, our dreams do that a lot of times. And, but when you're a lot of like, I mean, cancer is traumatic, like, you know, going the big wave experience I write about, about Nell Scott almost dying in 50 foot waves. Like it, like all that stuff is like, those are traumatic experiences and like the people, you know, going through a divorce and stuff, it's like, those are traumatic. And, um, it's the way we store trauma isn't always processed very well. And so like going through an experience, like, you know, an, an ayahuasca ceremony, like you can deeply process some of that stuff and have a greater acceptance for yourself. And, and so, a lot of it is like not being fearful of that experience and um, allowing yourself to see all of it. And, and instead of being like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Cause it's like our, our natural psyche just is like, you know, stuff stuff down and slams a lid on it and doesn't want to look at it. Whereas in that experience, you're looking at it very clearly and, and, and able to kind of like, look at it and be like you know what like i you're able to forgive yourself and also have a little bit of acceptance in in that moment yeah i use an app um i talk about it all the time so i'm belaguring um <laughs> long time listeners but i i use this sam harris's app uh yeah. wake, waking yeah. up and he has a meditation <clears throat> particularly on pain that i have used many times because i have a habit of breaking my arm um where he recommends uh boring into the raw sensation of the pain um, and recognizing and when you feel it as a raw sensation you you can recognize that there's no such thing as unbearable pain because by having this experience by definition you are bearing it um, and I think that there is that's it's not unlike emotions like emotions you can feel like they're unbearable but you're living with it regardless of whether or not you're looking at it yeah you can't you can't pretend pretend something away you know if you're if you're feeling it it's it's happening and like stuffing it down is not gonna you know there's you have to like allow it to process through you and let it to allow that like it's almost like when you're having a um and having like encounters with people that are you know you're you you have very negative connotations with or you have to continually encounter instead of like being fearful and running away and like retreating in yourself like just looking at it be like hey what am I feeling right now oh I'm feeling a little bit frightened I'm feeling you know these just observing all the things coming up within you and then being like I'm gonna be fine I'm like not gonna allow their whatever they are going through to influence me like I I'm responsible for my own side of this and that's all I'm responsible for it's just me I can't control anybody else and I can't I have no say in anybody else's emotions, but I can control how I respond to that incident. And, and same with like an injury or anything or, you know, a, a challenging 
time when you're like, uh, you know, I don't know where my next paycheck's coming from. It's like, you can either let the fear completely paralyze you, or you can be like, how can I be innovative and resourceful and figure out how to, you know, get through this next day or, you know, find the next meal. It's like, we all have that resourcefulness and resilience within us, but if we allow panic and fear to like paralyze us, we're not going anywhere. So. Mm. Have you ever spent a long amount of time in silence? Um, not in like a Vipassana, like willing sense. Um, I have in like within my, just my own life, but not, I haven't sat in like a, you know, multi-day meditation. No. Yeah. You strike me as someone who is comfortable with silence. I, I, I don't know. It's definitely like something that I feel like it's almost my, because it's almost a default. I don't, I'm not drawn to wanting to do that. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Super insecure people want to get famous. <laughs> yeah. If you're normally quiet, it's like, why would I get more quiet right now? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I did a, a one day, well, I did a, a week long, um, silent meditation retreat with a guy named Adi Ashanti about a year ago. Have you ever heard of Adi Ashanti? Um, I think through you, yeah. But. Spiritual gangster. He's great. Um, and he does silent meditation retreats up at Mount Madonna. But um, just yeah, two days ago, um, my housemates and I, who are in quarantine here, decided to set up new social norms. So like one day we're only going to speak Spanish to each other. Because we're like, we realize, okay, this is our little tribe. Let's figure out how we want to set up a new society. So we're going to do like all these weird things. Like one day it's going to be a matriarchy where like the woman in the house like gets to set all the rules and tell all the guys what they want to do. And like one day it's going to be like full communism. One day, But we did one day uh, two days ago where we were all silent for the whole day and we couldn't use our phones. And uh, it was, it, it was uh, way more profound than I thought it would be. Because just one day, it's not like a week-long silent meditation retreat, and you don't even need to be meditating the whole time. But, but to notice how little you actually need to say to make it through the day is a really cool insight to have. And how much of, uh, one thing I notice is how much of the shit that I say is um, a complaint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or how much we automatically just reach for our phones to like not think you know, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody else is experiencing this right now, but like, um, seeing your screen time stats right now during this, uh, the coronavirus stuff is like kind of, it's not great feedback. <laughs> it's not <laughs> great feedback. Oh no. Well, it's the phone distracts you from your lack of control. The second you're off the phone right now, you realize that you have no control over the situation and you need to feel that raw human emotion, yeah. whatever it is, whether it's like profound human connection or fear or anxiety, there's less stuff to distract you from working through that emotion. And the phone is like a buffer between you and your like animal self in a way. Yeah, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of times it's like, I mean, lately I've spent like four or five hours on, on FaceTime or phone calls, just like talking to friends that, you know, are, have, are at home right now and just like need a friend or whatever. And I found like usually where I, my, my daily walks with my dog are like across to the Cape or to the dune where I can, I still get phone service and I take a lot of my conference calls and stuff from there. But because of 
just the news cycles lately, I've gone down to the beach where I, I have no service and it's like, it's the same distance to walk, but I just usually don't walk there because I want to take care of business. And it's been so nice to just like hang out for like a half an hour, an hour and just be like, I can't use my phone. So let me just, let me just be right here right now. And, and so it's like this weird thing where like we want to know what's going on, but that can like get us in our head, but then sometimes we just need to step away. And so it's like, it's a, it's a right now is different because like, I want to know enough that I feel more comfortable. It's like, it's like when I first was really surfing a lot and I wanted to know how big the threat of sharks really was. And so I studied everything I possibly could learn about sharks. I, I studied every shark attack on the West coast. I like wanted to know why they attacked, when they attacked, you know, where they attacked, like, and, and I realized it was actually pretty infrequent in a lot of ways, like for the amount of people in the water, like how, and it helped me like feel less afraid. Obviously I see a fin in the water and I, you know, my friend going under, I still like get freak out, but you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a, and so for me, it's like, okay, go on Twitter, follow like Andy Slava or one of the people that are actually like in the know on what's happening and you know, the, you know, medical, like what's happening in the world right now for real but don't start going down the rabbit hole of all the people's opinions because it's just going to drag you into the pit of despair. And yeah. So, well, for the first time now uh, in a while, people are listening to experts again. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. There was a while where people were like, yeah, what do you know? Like, what do you, what do you know about climate change? Like, well, I'm a climatologist. I've been studying this for 15 years. And like, Eh, screw you. I like Mark's opinion. He's got a great podcast and I relate to him. Whereas now they were like, holy shit, we're all going to die. We need to ask doctors what they think again. What does epidemiologists do again? Yeah, oh, they exactly. actually been studying this for like the last, you know, half a century. So, uh, yeah, we don't know the names of these things. It's like Zoolander and she's like, I have to tell you something. I'm bulimic. You can read minds. <laughs> totally it's just it's yeah it's it's people are i mean i remember i mean i was in sports medicine and health sciences like in in school and and microbiology micro was like literally the class that scared the living i mean i was i've never been so terrified in a class i was like wow there are so many little microorganisms that, that can kill us and it's 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 freaky and it's amazing that we've gone this long honestly without any sort of really real pandemic we've like skated through the last you know three or four and this is the first one we're like oh wow we gotta think about health and our resources and like you know how we interact and it's yeah like everybody i mean the interesting thing about all of this is i mean like as you said at the beginning like you know you're more comfortable being alone but like introverts or even socially social facing introverts you know like I, I i definitely love people and love interaction but i need my alone time um more than more than my time with friends and uh extroverts are like the ones that are going absolutely bonkers right now and i'm just like it's just another day you know i i had just finished the book i just gotten through like a pacific northwest winter and kind of hadn't traveled because i was trying to get the book out and so I was kind of like a bear that had been in hibernation for the last few years and was ready to come out. And then this hit and I was like, they're like, I felt like this warden game warden was outside the den being like, get back in your den. I'm like, I want to come outside. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, but. it's given people a lot of time to, to focus. Um, 
And I, I have the, one last question for you. So we've been going oh, yeah. for a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. We talked going. to you all day, but this is, uh, this was great. Um, what skill are you working on right now that most people might not think you're working on? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm obviously building my house, so that's like, that's one of the most challenging things I'm working through right now. But I would say learning how to be productive um, in a time where all the defaults, you know, the default things we go towards are, are not there, you know, like all my book tour stuff got canceled, all my speaking engagements got canceled, all my photography gigs got canceled, my film gigs. It's like, it's, it's more being okay with being myself. And so really what I'm learning is like how to have a morning routine that's, that's productive and working on self-acceptance and not beating myself up when I like don't feel like getting out of bed immediately. Um, I feel like that's one of the most, I love morning routines and like honestly living in a van right now, you know, until my house is done is like, it's a little more challenging. You know, it's like you got to warm, you know, it's like, it's not the, it's not, it's a little bit more of a challenging situation to like have a, a great routine, but it's easy to, get sucked into your phone and all these other things. So I'm just working on like having a more healthy uh, morning routine for my own mental health. And so just, it's like getting up and, you know, meditating instead of just diving down the, you know, Twitter hole, you know, it's yeah. like, is, so what does it look like? What does the realistic routine look like for you? I mean, honestly, it's like it's waking up and sitting up. I, I always have like, I, I'm a big fan of like, having like a kind of a set routine for morning is like as far as drinking I like to drink some lemon water and then have a have like some mate or you know like you know right now coffee is probably the worst thing for me because it just sends my you know anxiety to the <laughs> stratosphere and so like yeah. and so i mean i'm out of mud water so i haven't been drinking that but like as far as like i definitely enjoy like something a little easier like your mate or um i drink a lot of just a lot of tea so i try to make something the night before have things all set to go so i can just hit the start on the tea kettle you know and have things ready to go and then the heater's within reach and so i can warm up the van and like sit up and you know take some deep breaths before i go into the day and um the hydration i mean it's like so much like one of the simplest things we can do for our bodies is just drinking more water and that's like you know all the cravings and a lot of the like fatigue often come from this like dehydration so um it's like i've been trying to always have have something palatable nearby that is is part of you know helping me with that so oprah once told me that you should be able to read through your pee <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> i'm gonna remember that one uh, uh, on that note <laughs> ben moon you're the man uh how can people get in touch with you um, on Instagram, um, it's Ben at moon, uh, uh, sorry, at Ben underscore moon. Um, and Twitter it's Ben moon. Um, my website's Ben moon. Um, the book you can, it's called Denali, uh, a man, a dog, a friendship of a lifetime. Um, the, the shortened link is like bit.ly forward slash Denali book. Um, yeah, reach out, uh, shoot me a, shoot me a line. I'd love to chat. So. 
Ben Moon, thank you so much. That's the show. I'm going to play out the song called Mr. E by Carry Us Slow. And I will link to their band page in the show notes below. So if you dig it, check them out and listen to more of their music. Don't forget, I'm now doing the box of goodies. So if you want to check out Ben's book, you can head over to kyle.surf and sign up for the subscription. Once a month, I'll send you a new book that I've been digging, as well as a tincture of potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD, all at a discount. You can head over to kyle.surf and do that. Thank you to everyone who gives this show a rating on iTunes. It helps me get other guests that I can then bring to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, it is a beautiful world out there, despite all that is happening. And you are beautiful, too. Have a great day. So